She too has her back to the wall, on the other side of the stairwell, and she sinks down onto her haunches when Buller turns the gun on her. She recognizes it immediately as a 9mm Browning, though the inquiry will incline to the view that she probably learned that fact subsequently. She will not recall closing her eyes or covering her face with her hands as she waits for Buller to kill her. That he does not do so will be easily explained, to the satisfaction of the inquiry, by the fact that the fourth bullet jams in the clip, and Flint loses count of how many times he works the slide in an attempt to clear it. She is by now aware of too many other sounds and impressions. She is aware of D.I. Pendle's labored efforts to breathe. From too far away, she hears the raised voices of increasingly desperate men and the pounding of solid objects against a steel door. She hears Frank Harling say in his unmistakable South London cadence, Finish it, Buller, for fuck's sake, get it done. Above all, she is aware of the grunted exertions of a seriously overweight lawyer from Beverly Hills, who is now standing over her, beating on her skull with the butt of his otherwise impotent browning. She will concede she must have put her hands over her head, for both her thumbs and seven of her fingers are broken. What she will vividly recollect, however, is falling onto her back and feeling the weight of Buller as he comes down on top of her. She feels his elbow in her throat and his manicured fingernails gouging into her skin as he seeks to gain a firmer grip on the fabric of her blouse and bra and rip them away. Absurdly, she thinks he is going to rape her, but having exposed her breasts and having found the microphone he is looking for, he gets to his feet. She hears him say, Bitch! 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 Over and over, and then the real pain begins. He leans against the wall to maintain his balance while he methodically stamps her chest with the heel of one of his handmade Italian boots. Perhaps out of some irrational impulse, he is trying to destroy the microphone, as if by doing so he can erase the evidence it has collected. He only succeeds in driving it deep into her abdominal wall. Then he goes to work on her face, the heel of his boot raining down blows on her with the indifferent brutality of a jackhammer. She loses consciousness, though not for long, if her recollections are accurate. She will recall for the inquiry lying in the stairwell like a broken doll, tasting her own blood and the gritty enamel of her shattered teeth, smelling her own urine, listening to the sounds of footsteps running up the stairs, listening to Pete Pendle die. Clayton Buller did not get far. Perhaps the realization that he had just killed one British police officer and stamped the face of another into pulp was too much for a heart already overtaxed by the strain of his excessive weight and a three-pack-a-day cigarette habit. In any event, it gave out. They found him in Elizabeth Street, dead behind the wheel of his Hertz car that came to rest in the interior of what had been, until his arrival, a fashionable boutique. But they did not find Frank Harling, either on that day or in the course of one of the most intensive manhunts ever mounted by the Major Crimes Task Group. Detective Inspector Pete Pendle had been as popular with his men as any supervisor is likely to be, and they did not take kindly to his murder, or their own failure to prevent it. And Annie and all of those detectives who saw Grace Flint's shattered face, or heard descriptions of it, wanted to get their hands on Clayton Buller, and, having been denied that gratification by his death, they transferred their anger to Frank Harling. Righteous anger that churned their stomachs, for, after all, it was Harling who had provoked and encouraged the mayhem.
They're the law, said with utter certainty. Finish it, Buller, an incitement to murder if ever there was one. And it was Harling who had rendered the backup teams helpless by arranging for the door to the stairwell to remain locked, or so the police strongly suspected. How that was achieved and how Harling knew he was walking into a police trap were gnawing questions that ate at their collective consciousness like a canker. So every favour owed major crimes was called in. Throughout metropolitan London, and then the south of England, and then the length and breadth of the country, every police force was enjoined into the hunt. Every port and airport was placed on full alert, and it seemed safe to assume that if Harling left the country he did not do so by any means of public transportation, unless under a convincing and ingenious disguise. Nor, if he remained in Britain, did he or anyone fitting his description check into any hotel or boarding house.